So on this Labor Day weekend, we find ourselves back in chapter 20. Those of you who've been around know I've been preaching a series in chapter 20, and you might have noticed that there was a peculiar uh, absence in my exegesis thus far of chapter 20, and that was this sort of out of the context uh, blessing of Ishmael. We'll find out today that Ishmael and that blessing has a lot to do with what this weekend, a weekend devoted to remembering, perhaps celebrating our work, is all about. Now I want to take you back to an article in, written in 1930. It was an essay entitled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. The economist then John Maynard Keynes predicted a 15-hour work week in the 21st century. Why are you guys laughing? Yeah, exactly. He created the equivalent of a five-day weekend. He said, quote, for the first time since his creation, humanity will be faced with his real, his permanent problem, how to occupy the leisure. Fast forward to 1957, an article that was written in the New York Times, the writer Eric Bernal predicted that as work became easier, our identity would be defined by our hobbies or our family life. Quote, the increasingly automatic nature of many jobs, anticipating, of course, what we now know to be the, the digital age, coupled with the shortening work week, leads to an increasing number of workers to look not to work but to leisure for satisfaction, meaning expression, he wrote, a meaningful expression, he wrote. <clears throat> is that what we're living right now? I mean, everybody's got this smirk on their face. I wish you could see it. It's like a joke, isn't it? Exactly. So fast forward to February the 24th, 2019, this year. Derek Thompson writing in The Atlantic. It would take The Atlantic, wouldn't it, to, to preach to us? So your sermon text today is from the Atlantic. Here it comes. The title is Workism is Making Americans Miserable, reflecting on a whole host of studies. For the college-educated person, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. He goes on, rich college-educated people work more than they did many decades ago. They are reared from their teenage years to make work their passion, their career. And if they don't have a calling, they are told not to yield until they find one. Does that sound familiar? It's my passion. Is that good? What do you think of that? Is that what work is? Our passion? I confess it sounds, well, maybe hip, but more than that, it, I like it. I want it to be true. But let's think about that. He goes on, the economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work 
might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided, he argues, with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identity, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. I, mean, I can't believe this is the Atlantic. Like I said, this is your text for today. And workism is among the most potent of the new religious atheisms competing for congregants. In the past century, the American conception of work has shifted from jobs to career to callings, from necessity to status to meaning. We've created this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work. Says Oren Cass, when quoting from The Atlantic, the author of the book, The Once and Future Worker. We tell young people that their work should be their passion. Don't give up until you find a job that you love, we say. You should be changing the world, we tell them. That is the message in commencement addresses, in pop culture, and frankly, in the media, including The Atlantic, he confesses. There's a great irony, you see, how in the exaltation of work, it has led to the humiliation of work, wherein work as a calling, passion, identity, meaning, endeavor leads to great disappointment. That's the, the total thesis of this Atlantic article. The mismatch between expectations and reality is a recipe for severe disappointment and has been actually traced to the, rise, to the substantial rise in anxiety and depression, according to a 2014 study. And so all of this raises a question on this weekend. What are we celebrating? What are we endeavoring to do in our labor, in our vocation? Can one distinguish between calling, maybe, and vocation? all sorts of questions ensue. And this will lead us, believe it or not, to Ishmael. But Ishmael, as you will only understand if you put it into the context, really, of the whole redemptive history, beginning in Genesis, will see that this promise given to Ishmael, together with the rejection, is very much in sequence to the trajectory that began after the fall. And how it is at once work is exalted, yet work has become humiliated when work becomes our work righteousness in a very global and, and, and general way. But let's stop here. I think I've opened up the can of worms enough. Let's, uh, let's ask God to meet with us. So Father, we, we desperately need your grace and help. We're getting to the core of what we do 24-7. We're getting to the essence of what keeps us busy most of our lives. 
We tread on dangerous ground. We need you to soften our heart to a willingness to listen to your word, to save us, perhaps, from what could be a great adversary, even the adversary of the devil, who tempts us, as so Adam and Eve were tempted, to a workism that would lead us astray from your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, our text begins, or let me remind you what you just heard. There's, there's these two incredible statements. In the context, remember, of God's redemptive promise to Abraham, offered to him in chapter 15, renewed in chapter 17, reiterated in chapter 20, there is this great covenant people that God has created, a people who have not been rejected by God in his presence, but have been included in, in his presence, and we've learned the key, the crux of that inclusion is they're, they're being saved, they're putting themselves upon God in reliance upon this utopian dream that God had put into their hearts in creation for not just an eternal life measured in time, but an eternal life measured in quality, a utopianism that is at the heart of all our work in life when it comes down to it. And we've told that, that here now, that utopian dream, that salvific trajectory of a people after God's own heart, we're told that it does not include Ishmael. For Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might, be, might live in your presence, live before you. And that's code word, if you go back, what we've already looked at for being communicated in the presence of God rather than excommunicated outside of his salvific presence. And God, this is striking, and God said no. No. It seems so cruel. It seems so abrupt. It seems in this context and here again, oh, I plead with you. I know you love simple sermons. I know you want to get to a how-to, but you will not have the conviction that's going to sustain you through what's coming to us in this world, where Christianity is in such a grave minority that we'll have to stand on conviction and not popularity. I beg you, open your mind, listen, study hard with me for a moment, because this is not a cruel statement. This is a statement of consequence that harkens all the way back to Adam and Eve. He goes on to explain, but it's through Sarah and her offspring, Isaac, that this covenant trajectory will be established. But then he says this, but as for Ishmael, I have heard you. In other words, a father's plea for his son. A son who was born not of Sarah, but of Sarah's servant girl, which begins to expose you perhaps to, hmm, what's going on with that? But he hears the father's plea. He says, behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 kings, and I will make him into a great nation. Now, what's really interesting 
is the comparison of that blessing to the, to the blessing given to Abraham through Isaac. There it says, I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You see the difference? There's something about the blessing of Ishmael that pertains to all people of all faiths and none that promises God's sustaining grace in a temporal sense. And yet there's something about that special versus common grace that is extended to Isaac that pertains to the very progeny of Isaac, but more even to the beginnings of Isaac. What did Isaac represent? You should be asking yourself. What did Eshmael represent? And you begin to see the lines become clear. As we'll see, Isaac is the son of rejecting God's sovereign grace. It's the result of human ingenuity and wisdom that crafted a plan in the, in the face of all odds that looked like no way would the promise be fulfilled through Abraham and Sarah because they were too old to have a child. And therefore they figured out a plan. And they left the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they took it upon themselves to procure eternal life. But then there's Isaac who in spite of all odds comes to us through a supernatural birth. A birth that's carefully narrated, that we would know that this did not rest upon human ingenuity, but only on the ingenuity of God and his supernatural intervention. A birth that would lead us directly to the birth of Christ in his own miraculous conception. That's the big picture. That's the exegesis. But now I want you to mind down with me a little bit to find the conviction. Let's notice a few things here. We'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. Versus, no, he's not my covenant child. Let's first talk about this exaltation statement will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. What exactly is God promising Ishmael? Well, let's go back to the words of Genesis where those words will first show up. In Genesis 1, we begin the narrative with God saying, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. Let, us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And that's the context. The context wherein creation has been depicted in chapter 1 as in seven days. Three days are focused on three kingdom spheres. The next three days are focused on three kingdom uh, or under kings, if you will, over those three spheres. And humanity, as you've just heard read in the language there, puts humanity at the very apex of this created kingdom, whereas they are the under kings of God himself, that is to image, to execute God's glory, God's rule, God's sovereignty over the earth on behalf of God as priestly kings. 
which would establish a royal nation. And it's in that context that then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Work the earth or the land and subdue it or better guard it or better bring it under the lordship of God. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. Those are two different spheres. And over every living thing that moves on the earth, the third sphere. But you do this imaging God. Now what is their calling? Is it to steward land? Is it to work the land, work the earth? Well, no. The calling is to image God. The penultimate calling is to do so as they work the land and the air and the sea and all that other stuff that was said. But first of all, let's just make clear this all happens before the fall. Work is not a curse. It is a virtue. This is the point of Proverbs 18. The one who is slack in his work he is the brother of destruction. Destruction as contrasted with creativity. The one who is slack, I mean, I'm sorry, the positive role of work within the created order is made explicit then in Genesis 2-2 when work is viewed as being derived from God himself as the first cause of all creation. Our work is after God's work, imaging that work. That is to say that work in itself is a noble and good thing. Our work is not, though, our primary calling. Notice how this is expressed in that same passage in chapter 2. We're told about this seven-day week that there's a seventh day. You've had these dyads of, you know, sphere and kings and sphere and kings and sphere and kings and then just king. Where's the sphere? This is the king of kings. He's described in chapter 2 as, well, the word you would have in your text is rested on the seventh day. That word is the same word, which is used throughout the Hebrew to be enthroned. It's like what we would say of a judge who is seated. When a judge is seated, he is what? He is enthroned or he is established as the lord of the courtroom, so to speak. It's that same language in the Hebrew. How this God is now King of kings, Lord of lords. And that's the context, verse 3, where God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And that is to say, installed it as an institution for humanity. Why would they do that? You may think of the Sabbath as somehow this extracurricular thing that pious Puritans talk about. This is at the core. This is at the very core of humanity and the very, the very essence of how our work will be balanced with a calling that transcends our work. We lose this beautiful harmony and this balance that's, that's instituted in creation. We lose the harmony. We will, as you'll see, discover the humiliation of work when work attempts to usurp the Sabbath enthronement of God. It's all in the poetry. You gotta slow down. I'm sorry. 
It's not just a text, it's a whole story that derives the essence of what we're looking for today. Note then especially this idea of, 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 the, of the be fruitful and multiply, it's described next in two very important and significant words. There's a kind of twofold mandate that's assigned to these two, these ideas of being fruitful and multiplying. The first word is translated in your English to fill, but again, it's probably best to work as we understand it today, the earth. It's, it's accompanied with a promise that's focused on the land and on the temporal realities of multiplying. It's what we would call a common grace kind of work. A common grace that's related to a flourishing that respects and images the aesthetic and utilitarian work of God that was described in his own creation. Let me make that really clear. It's interesting how when God is described as doing this work, when God is described as creating the world, it's very clear that it's described as both beautiful and productive. Which brings in this, this idea of, of vocation and, and work, if you will, labor, that, that there's an aesthetic component where we bring and subdue the earth under the lordship and the beauty of God as well as to make it productive for the common good and their flourishing and all that that will involve. This idea of work there, to work the earth. That's the first word. But there's a second word here. It's a very important second word. It's shamar in the Hebrew. And this word means to guard. Now where will you find that word? If the first word you'll find consistently throughout the Old Testament as describing the work of the labor in the land, for instance, a kind of temporal work that's noble and good. When I say temporal, that's not bad, but it's provisional. And then there's this work, shamar, which is translated in some subdue, better guard, maybe even better sanctify. That word is found throughout the Hebrew text of the Old Testament to describe the work of a priest in the temple. Now, I don't have the time now to show you how many amazing images and words are used of Eden that will want you to understand that Eden is more than a biosphere. Eden is a temple of God. Eden, with its door on the east side likened unto the temple and its door on the east side during the Old Testament, is this place of God's redeeming and, and redemptive presence. And we are understanding here that humanity is given this dual mandate, not only to work and be creative after the creativity and work of God, you could say our first mandate is to actively be involved in recreation. Isn't it funny how we've taken that word and taken it directly opposite of what it originally would have meant? To recreate. If you want to do recreation in this biblical sense, that's what you're going to start doing tomorrow morning when you go to work. So perhaps the early uh, writings in the 30s were part true. We've redefined recreation, haven't we? But on the other hand, this guarding, this sanctifying, 
is described of the temple priests who were to keep the holy temple holy. To rid it of all those things, those impurities and immoralities that would stain and that would hinder the glory of God and his purposes of redemption. We see then the same word that's described in the cherubim and seraphim who were placed to guard, if you will, the entrance back into Eden after the fall. That same word is used, that they are to guard it, shamar. You see these words descriptive of the priest who were to carefully fence, if you will, uh, the, the, the temple, to guard it from intrusion. They would unsanctify it. Herein lies the key to both the exaltation of work but eventually the humiliation of work. The key to avoiding what will be the humiliation of work, our primary calling is to image God. And in this imaging of God, work becomes a means towards doing this, but the moment that work becomes the end and not the means, it becomes an idolatry. And we fail our second mandate to protect and guard and subdue all things to the Lordship of Christ. We see ourselves making deals with the devil, you could say, in the form of a negotiating with an employer. Well, how about just one Sabbath out of three? How about this? How about that? All of a sudden, what are we doing? My identity, don't you get it? I got to have this job. One of the things I do, as you know, is I interview and meet with a lot of people who are looking for jobs, jobs who want to, guys particularly want to be church planners. And one of the things I'll almost always ask is, why do you want this job? Why do you need this job? It's a trick question, to be sure. Because if they say, I couldn't live without it, they're going to get probably a 15-minute lecture. I'm going to say that is so dangerous. And I fear for your congregation. You just can't go there. You can't be a fulfillment of the Imago Dei in the office of priest in the temple of the Church of Jesus Christ and worship the priesthood activity. The activity must be in subordination to the Lordship of God, you see. That's no less for you, the economist, you, the teacher, you, the student, you, the whatever. And that's the key. We hear now something very important going on. Moving forward then through redemptive history that will get us to Ishmael, this be fruitful and multiply is repeated. It's repeated to Noah. It's repeated to Abraham. And yes, it's repeated to Ishmael. And would you believe that every time it's repeated, it focuses on the first word, to work or to fill. It explicitly states it. For instance, Noah, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Didn't say subdue it. Now, it will say it in another context to Noah and to one of his other sons. But it's interesting that all theologians historically, back in the day when there were historians, theologians, but, and, and they would recognize, they called this a common grace. Even the rainbow, you remember, that was given is a sign of this common grace that's extended to all of humanity 
related to their work. So when you go to work tomorrow, the rainbow is shining. It's the original use of the rainbow, I guess. And it's a beautiful thing to remember that God is pleased for you to go to work tomorrow. That God loves what that work could be and imaging his aesthetic and utilitarian productivity in the world. And doing so for the common good. Doing so as a servant to serve the interest of humanity. A beautiful thing. It's repeated to Abraham. And again, he talks about it in the same sense. And then to Ishmael in the same sense. And so what's the take home before I move to the second part? The take home is clearly that work should be exalted, but is a penultimate calling, not your primary calling. We need a thorough going revolution, quoting Dorothy Sayers, you saw it earlier in her postscript, The Worth of Work, in her book, The Mind of the Maker. She says, we need a thorough going revolution in our whole attitude to work, not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money but as a way of life in which the nature of humanity should find the proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. Don't lose that phrase. That it should in fact be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself and that humanity made in God's image should make things as God has made them for the sake of doing well that which is worth doing. I love that phrase. It reflects the sentiment of the reformers of the 16th and 17th century, who at that time were rediscovering the, the secular calling that is outside of church or, or that, that special grace sense. They were rediscovering that common grace sense of calling. There's some great quotes that I just think would, would minister to you. And so I'll indulge. Perhaps no more than from people like uh, Martin Luther. If you are a manual labor, he says, you find that the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand, into your heart. It teaches and it preaches how you should treat your neighbor and your work. Just look at your tools, at your needle and at your thimble, your beer barrel, yes, that was a noble vocation for Luther. Your goods, your scales, or yardstick, or measure. You have as many preachers as you have transactions, goods, tools, and other equipment in your house and home. There is therefore nothing which is so bodily carnal and external that it does not become spiritual when it is done in the word of God and faith. Household tasks, he says, have not appearance of sanctity. I don't want to hear too many amens out there. And yet these very works in connection with the household are more desirable than all the works of all the monks and nuns put together. He goes on, our spirit, natural reason takes a look at family life and says, alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, labor at my trade? What then does the Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes. It looks upon these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with a divine approval as with the costliness of gold and jewels. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers, 
You heard that, dads. God, with all of his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because the Father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. I could just go on and on and on. I have three or four here. John Calvin says it as well. In all of our cares, toils, annoyances, and other burdens, I will be, it will be no small alleviation to know that all these are under the superintendence of God. This too will afford admirable consolation in following your proper calling. No work will be so mean and sordid as not to have a splendor and a value in the eye of God. If you understand what we've talked about here, then this is going to restore work in your life. Perhaps it is sad that it takes an Atlantic article to preach to our culture. When they were telling, when we heard it say to us that our work was never meant to be our altars. He goes on to say the modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of, cons of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy tens of millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. It's hard to self-actuate on the job if you're a cashier. He says, for instance, one of the most common occupations in our U.S. I mean, think about how elite it is, elitist it would be in a way that's not quite biblical. This movement to make work our passion. He, he exposes the elitism of that. There's something very elite indeed about a cashier, he will go on to argue, who works for a higher purpose. The cashiering itself, like changing the diapers, can be drudgery. But there's a meaning to that work, especially if that work is put into the context of a great army of workers, a great collaboration of workers that God has brought into this world. And together, we all working fulfill this noble dream to image God and his recreational activity through us. It's a beautiful vision. I have counseled so many people, especially in this congregation, those who would come here in the shadow of the city and say, you know, I, I work over Federal Express. I, I do this. I do that. It's so sad. It breaks my heart. I'm thinking of a person right now who's one of the most noble dads I know, who, who has shared with me at times that he got off track in his earlier career aspirations for the love of his son and his family. I haven't even looked to see if you're there and I'm not going to look. God is so pleased with that man. Because he didn't get his identity in his career. He got his identity, whether he would put words to it like this or not, in imaging God and making God's values the value of his life as it would towards caring for his family. I could think of some of you others who are in this room. I can think of many others who are not in this room. I can't say it enough. It is a dangerous thing. And it's just as dangerous for you who, you who might think that you found that elite job or that job that creates this public identity of, of, of influence or purpose. Oh, how dangerous that could be. And you're going to see why now. We move to the humiliation of work, where Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, and God said no. 
Why was Ishmael rejected? Let's again go back to Genesis. Genesis and this Sabbath rest that I've already explained, whose purpose it was particularly to limit our expectations of work and to test us as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even to this day tests us. It is a test. Do we, can we trust in something greater for our provisions? Can we trust in God for our utopian dream that we have, all of us, for our lives? And not, and even reject the futility of our human wisdom set apart from God. Can we do that? Genesis, on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he might have done. And so God blessed the seventh day, that is to institutionalize it, to make it sacred, and made it holy because on it God rested, seated on the throne from all the work that he had done. Think about it again in the context. The six days that we are to labor and to do our work in the temporal realm, even as we're to guard, it is a sanctuary of God. But the seventh day, a day where we're to acknowledge and to step back from our work, to step back from our identity that would get itself in our work and re-identify ourselves as the Imago days, priest unto God. For in six days, therefore, the, the commandment will tell us, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested. Again, that word is to be enthroned. I don't like the English on this one. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Six days, therefore, you should label and do your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord, is a consecration, a coronation unto the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do your work. There are many versions of what it means to keep the Sabbath, even within some orthodox ranks, I'll confess, as you go through the scripture. But at the core, there's a time in the week, particularly historically on the first day of the week now, where the week of the rest given out of Christ's resurrection, where a Sabbath rest remains, I just quoted Hebrews, wherein the people stop and they worship. At the core, I don't know of any orthodox theologian in the history of the church that would describe to you that worship, corporate community worship, is not essential to Sabbath keeping. And again, there's other opinions as to what that means in terms of the rest of the day. I come down a little closer to the full day, as I think historically it was. Some people start their Sabbath the, like the Jews on the sundown to the sundown. But there is some at least grace in that. But the point can't be lost. The Sabbath and the way in which that became like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a means to protect you and to save you from what we're going to learn has happened. You remember that there was a tree of life. And the tree of life, it was not life of the kind or at the level bestowed on humanity and creation that was being promised there. The tree of life was significant, not as a temporal life, but as an eternal and consummated life. This eternal utopian reality. 
This is intimated by the identity of the tree as a symbolic replica of the immortal God. This is also indicated by the relationship of the tree of life to the consequence of the probation in Genesis chapter 3.22, where it is regarded as a seal of everlasting life explicitly. And subsequently, it is revealed to mean what I just said in the course of redemptive history where it reappears in the context of the consummated glory of the, of the, restora- of the restored paradise of God, revelations, and described as there in the context of the tree of life. It's really important to understand this. Here and we are introduced to this grand dream. What motivates you in your work? Well, I can tell you, even if you hadn't put words to it, you're going to say, how you know me? Well, I'm going to tell you in a very deep and existential way what it is. It's a utopian dream. We will work ourselves to the bone. Because we so have in our, it almost is one of those great things that makes me believe in God. How is it that humanity has such great drive to work so hard and to have such incredible ingenuity and creativity? I'm, I, I, I almost worship you as I watch you go to work. You are amazing. The beautiful mind. Thank you. 
something you can't do. There's questions that you can't, it just keeps going. You guys are doing research right now. You're researching things that have developed to my whole organisms that, that's, that's mutated in the last century or in the last decade. We just can't keep up with it. We should know it.
exercised before we get to Abraham in the Tower of Babel. If ever there was an idolization of work, an idolization of humanity was in the Tower of Babel, inspired by a spirit of human autonomy and omnipotence. There was a ziggurat built to heaven that heaven could then come be brought down to earth. Oh, what a mess that created. The same mess that got created when Sarah and Abraham began to talk and took things in their own hands. When it looked like God's promise could not be fulfilled. They lost faith for a moment. So we're told in Genesis 16 how Abraham's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Those words were disastrous. Violated his marriage covenant. Went into polygamy, which was not uh, an institution that God approved of here clearly. So it says that he went into Hagar. She conceived.
Lord fulfilled his promise to Adam and Eve by the seed of the Lord. Through the seed of Two trajectories. 